Hello everybody and welcome to Wired for Winning. Uh, today we have uh, Cassandra Clemens from the United Kingdom and Cassandra is a graduate from a university Plymouth, I believe, and uh, also has a diagnosis of ADHD. So today we're very excited to welcome Cassandra uh, with us. I'll just do my clapperboard. <laughs> welcome, sir, Cassandra, to uh, to the podcast. Um, delighted to me. have you. No, it's Thank an absolute you. pleasure. <laughs> it really is. I'm kind of delighted because last week you invited me to a session with, I, I think, 10 other people uh, discussing the subject and the insights I took from that were wonderful. Um, would you mind just starting off the podcast by telling us your story of ADHD? And uh, we'll just take it from there, if that's okay. Okay. When my ADHD developed, I think around the age of seven in terms of when it started to become obvious that something was quite different. I had been ill before that um, life was difficult as well, but then I was really aware something was different and I couldn't quite make it out. You know, my behavior changed. Um, uh, people around me seemed to be very far away and um, I just felt very isolated. <clears throat> and as I became older, um, it was quite apparent that I took a lot of risks. Um, okay. I'm, I also, I'm also autistic, and I think that combination was very difficult, you know, for me. I just couldn't quite see that it was a risk. I just did f things that other people didn't do. And the, the, the um, gap between me and my peers became bigger and bigger and bigger, and I didn't quite understand what was going on. And that actually was going, it was going uh, downwards in many ways, you know, until I was in my late 20s or 30s. I did many things that were considered very dangerous. And looking back, you know, I did that even as a fairly small child. I was, I couldn't commit. I started getting actually a phobia of commitment, I think. Uh, there might have been an, an aspect of high sensitivity with feedback and so on as well. I didn't know any of these things. I was just considered very, very odd. Interestingly enough, my father is the same and he has never considered that as a possibility. You know, for him, um, his way is the highway and that's just that. But I think the two of us were playing off each other in a very uncomfortable way. So <laughs> I I've never really learned about that it might be or ten, um, attention differences. I don't like the word ADHD. I think there, no. there are lots of problems with it. So I call it attention differences because I think that comes very close to what it is, really. I agree. Um, so I've only learned that when I was in my 50s. I had been working with students for 12, 13 years, you know, and, and many of them had attention differences. And, you know, it took me all these years before I woke up to the... <laughs> To, to the understanding, I'm just like them. <laughs> so, so all these people taught me something because I was growing up with that my problems were personal problems. Very odd person, she just doesn't do things right. And my mum kept saying, well, she's just the way it is, she can't help it. So it took all these years, you know, and working with all these people and seeing transformations and um, to, for me to actually wake up to the realization, this is my most conspicuous neurodivergence. I've got others as well, but this is the most conspicuous one. And it, it, it explains so much. I think that was when I started to change things, you know, um, yeah. Basically. What? So, so you, you talk about, and, and it's very interesting over the last number of um, episodes of, of the podcast, you know, the, the, the common theme actually, and I don't know if this is just coincidence, but the common theme is late diagnosis. You know, when I was at school, um, I'm 54 now, and, you know, I was just a naughty boy at school. <laughs> yeah. you know, I was the naughty girl. <laughs> the, naughty, the naughty girl, absolutely. So, so you know, risk taker did not just naughty things. Things, but also dangerous things as well. And you mentioned autism and, and AUDHD, attention difference, is what happened to draw you towards a diagnosis? Was it 
And, and in your words, was it just frustration at feeling disconnected from the world and, and your peers, as you say? Or was there other factors involved in that as well? Um, yeah. what, what was it for you? Well, for me, it was to work with all these wonderful people. You know, he came to me, many with uh, in, in high anxieties around their work. You know, I, was, I worked at the university, um, feeling that they were somehow detached from themselves, the world around them. Some of them were taking tr tremendous risks. You know, there was this young girl who came in and said, oh, yesterday night I had an epileptic um, seizure. Uh, after trying the trucks that people gave me. Next time I do it in a more safe surrounding. And it's just like, what? You know, what are you talking about? You know, how, how can you do that? You know, you drink, you're sexually promiscuous. You know, now you've got a seizure in a, in a nightclub and you think it's okay to have a seizure when you're not in a nightclub. So it was, it was listening to people, working with them, helping them, because intuitively, I guess I was right on the ball. It just hadn't really occurred to me that I was the same. You know, I reacted in every way with a tremendous understanding. And that's why people came back. And, um, you know, and that was the feedback I got. And I could help an awful lot of people in various ways. It was in my capacity and beyond. But it took all this time for me to just, I was never seeking a diagnosis. You know, ah, it, it okay. basically just that understanding grew that that was the you know that was the case and it was waking up to it in a very short time frame all of a sudden you know realizing goodness me yes that really explains it because i'm also combined you know and i used to think i was bipolar and in fact you know, it seems to be a misdiagnosis very often yeah um, but I, I went to the psychiatrist years and years ago, ago when I was in my 40s and I said, you know, I, I worry about this. Yeah. And he said I was very close, but not quite there. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, but at the time, I mean, it's not long, long since we actually accept uh, ADHD in adults, isn't it? I remember even even now we have the odd, um, well, I, I've finished my work about a year and a half ago. But even then, we still had some doctors, some, you know, GPs who would not accept a student coming with, you know, with that idea of a diagnosis. But about five years ago, 10 years ago, definitely, it just didn't exist. So that psychiatrist, as nice as he was, it didn't occur to him that there might That's be something else going on, you know. That's very interesting. Can I ask, and again, this is for, for my edification as well as those listening to this, how can you describe how your combined autism and ADHD presents itself? What are the, the, the very key differences? Um, and, and if you're able to communicate that, I'd be fascinated. Well, I will try because the autism diagnosis I will say self-diagnosis because I had by that time so much um, so much insight you know mm. having seen hundreds of people you know various ages and, and backgrounds come to me with both you know autism mm. but mostly mostly what they called ADHD and I helped them to get a diagnosis at that point I didn't need a diagnosis as such but actually I'm just about to get one because I want access to work, you know, and it's really my most conspicuous problem, uh, yes. the combination. So let me, let me try to explain that. I think underlying everything always has been the autism. You know, when I look back now, I can see I was that child. It was, it was later in my life when it became more and more apparent, you know, there was something else going on. I think in a way, I like it now. It's a great combination. I, I really do, because the uh, knowing about the autism or the, the autistic traits has really allowed me to grow into my own skin. And I never could do that before. And I couldn't do it with the attention differences either. Yes. You know, they yes. explained a lot. They relaxed me. I could do more things. I didn't need to just live with it, but I could start managing it. 
Um, but the yeah, the autism is really what keeps me safe now. You know, before mm. it was it was so difficult. You know, with family, um, with friends not so much, but with family. You know, the being around people, not understanding why I always felt I had to tread on eggshells. You know, everything wasn't quite right. Everything was wrong. I didn't get the jokes, obviously. I mean, <laughs> a lot of us don't. That's <laughs> uh, so, true. So people would. You know, some of the family would actually always throw jokes at me and just wait for me not to get it. That was the joke, you know. Okay. okay. <laughs> so, but I would come home completely, completely trained, you know, and it would feel like I've been have to be so careful with everything. I would, I couldn't say something without being careful. I couldn't do something without being careful. And even when I was careful, it was often wrong. You know, that's what it felt like. So and I think your environment, it's, it's, they are putting you in, in a certain place. And it's nearly like they entrap you. You mm. are becoming that person. And it doesn't matter what you do. You are that person. And uh, now I don't feel like that anymore. You know, if somebody gets on my nerves, I just tell them. If I don't That's want to fantastic. do something, I just don't go, you know. Um, one of my family members was trying to trap me in there again. You know, he had misbehaved and I got angry. You know, and I just said, well, in that case, I go. And then he accused me of having ruined his evening. And I said, well, if you are misbehaving and are reacting to that, don't make me responsible for how you feel about it. And I would have never been able to do that before. Because it was That's... clear that I probably was wrong, you know, and I didn't know where I was going wrong. Yes, yes. You know, and interestingly that... enough, he accepted that. He wouldn't have accepted anything before because yeah. it comes from me now. It doesn't come from my head. It comes from me as a person, as a whole person. As a whole person, as somebody mm -hmm. who's grown. Yeah, yeah, and I, I love the phrase that you use, grown into your own skin. And, and actually, that's an interesting similarity of my own journey now. Um, I, I, I've used this expression before. I think it was Bob Dylan, the, 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 the guitarist, said, you know, the definition of success is waking up in the morning and doing exactly what you want to do for the day and going to bed at night, having done exactly what you want to do for the day. <laughs> and, and when you just yeah. mentioned there, you know, if you don't want to do something, you just don't do it. And, and you know, the, the triggers of you know, certain social situations, whether it be family or friends, not entering into them is an extremely powerful tool, I believe, to be able to, you know, not drain that battery, you know, Absolutely. because it's, yeah. no, thank you for that insight. That's, yeah. that, I kind of feel validated actually because of that personally now, and I hope others do as well. Tell me more around, you know, the, 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 the university lifestyle, the environment, um, did you feel that that was a, a controllable environment? I've got to be careful with what I say here. I, I work in myself, um, you know, I, I'm in my day job, I'm a technology consultant. You know, I have an interest in ADHD coaching as well, which I do. I run this podcast because I have ADHD. Um, but I also like to have a very controlled environment, whether that be in the workplace or, or here at home in my own office. Um, is you, the, 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 the world of working in that university environment a, a, a comfortable one? Or, you know, I, I always imagine the worst case scenario for me is putting me in a suit and tie in an office in a corporate bank somewhere and starting to sweat and going oh my god my anxiety is up my i don't understand the social cues from people what's happening here and i i'm interested in the environment that you create for yourself is that something you can explain as well versus the environment that i used to be an employee in or yeah i mean yeah. past past and present you yeah. know and and, yeah. and how did changing that environment if you like improve your your sense yeah. of self i mean i didn't need to to wear corporate clothes you know but we weren't okay. allowed to to show up in jeans which is very interesting because i've got um a sister-in-law in switzerland and she she works in a university and she will always wear jeans she couldn't believe i wasn't allowed to do that <laughs> but we didn't have to, <laughs> but we didn't have to wear corporate clothes now for me i think <sighs> 
I think that my um, that that my managers never really understood what we were doing, and that gave us for a very long time a lot of freedom. And in that freedom, I and my colleagues we did thrive. Mm. Yeah. So we we managed to do a lot of things for our students. We did uh, a lot of things for staff as well, and um, I was so blessed with a wonderful, wonderful team. And we helped each other, and we kept kept each other safe, and, um, and and that made a huge difference. Now that changed toward the end, and that's that's why I'm not there anymore. Um, but what I realized through the pandemic, um, different to many other people, is that I really like to work from home. I really, really do. And I know some people are missing the corporate environment or their environment um, with with their team. Um, but I had an interesting experience when I came back with the team, when we met. It wasn't for me at all as if I had been away. You know, so we, we obviously had talked via Zoom and so on a lot. And, and I did not feel at all that I had been away because uh, I seem to really like working also on the computer. I, do, I don't mind that at all. I, I feel I can connect with people and that's why I can do my work as well. Um, I feel that connection is not interrupted because I don't see them. Obviously, there is a physical aspect as well, and it's lovely to hug someone, you know. But I didn't meet, I didn't feel I was um, missing that so so much. That's very interesting. Yeah. I I'm one of those people who has worked from home for over 20 years, and um, and and when necessary, jumped on an aeroplane somewhere in the world to go and meet people to do necessary work, you know. And like you, you know, whether or not it's pandemic related or not, I always felt that I can have a very good connection like I have with you right now, mm. even though you're sitting on a screen, I can mm. feel your your energy, your enthusiasm, your, you know, you, you know that there's some connection. I, I, I often wonder whether the attention difference element of our our brains allows us to have a deeper sense of rapport um, than 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 others. I, I don't know if that's true or not, and I don't know if there's any research evidence on that. But listening to to people with the these neurodiverse traits, that seems to be the case as far as I can see. Um, it's it's nice to hear you say that. Actually, do you? You know, you talk about, I like to work from home, but is there also an element of an occasional face-to-face -face engagement that you also need as well, or, or is that not important at all? No, I do love it, and I hope to create courses which will have a residential part in it, and I know I okay. will absolutely enjoy that. I really do. I do enjoy people. You know, I think um, our old idea of what autism actually is, is going straight out of the window, isn't it? Um, there, there, there will be people who don't like people. You know, I've got, a, <laughs> I've got a son who tells me he hates people, but still he works with a whole load of, a bunch of people and he does it very, very well. So I'm, I'm not quite sure. I definitely don't hate people. I do love people, um, but I, I don't want to be overwhelmed by an environment yes. full of people who are not interested in me, if that makes sense. Yeah. It does completely. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's the hell of the, that, that typical corporate environment that I mentioned mm -hmm. that I, I cannot imagine, you know, and again, I think that's because of being distracted by other people and needing to know what else is going on rather than being able to then focus on, you know, what I need to focus on and hence, you know, having a closed environment and being able to, to, to do that. Um, Cassandra, medication, if I may, um, do, well, so historically, prior to diagnosis, did you self-medicate with alcohol or, or, or other things food. at all? Food. With food. Yes. Yeah, for, for for some reason, I just <clears throat> never liked alcohol. I never liked smoking, um, but I food from a very very early age on, you know, was a was a problem, and I thought it was because we were very poor, 
And, you know, the fridge was always empty and, mm. you know, trying to get food in any way we could. But actually later on, I realized it was an addiction and it was very important for me to have something. It took a long time. It took a long time, but uh, it's gone. It's been gone now for quite a long time as well. Yeah. Have you dopamine detoxed then? Was the, the need for food a, a medication for a dopamine hit or was it for another reason again i'm conscious of the autism element of this as well Mm. and and what that actually means you know well i I do realize i've never thought about it really in that way because medication for me has never been an issue you know i was very ill i told you that when i was quite young and my mother told me and that's a typical autistic reaction. She told me that I should never take medication again because I had had too much already. So okay. it never ended my mind all my life to take medication, you know, unless perhaps the odd paracetamol, yeah, very odd course. paracetamol. <clears throat> so even with the discussion around, you know, self-medicating and so on, it, it just didn't really enter my mind that my food was a sort of medication as well. Mm. But mm. I think at times I do eat to get energy. Yes, I do. Um, but I think for me it was more to um, get the emotions down, to keep the emotions down. You know, just uh, like somebody would drink in order not to have to think anymore. Yes. And and my and, and the reason why in the end I did something about it because um, it was because I realized if I would be a drinker instead of an overeater, I would probably have already killed myself. It was yes. that bad. You yes, know, yes. I would eat until I literally fall off the sofa. It yes, was that bad. Yes. And there were some other addictions as well, which were really uncomfortable. So, yes, in, I think for me it was more the trauma aspect of it, not to get go into a kind of trance and yeah. forget about the world. Yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense, mm-hmm. actually. So, so that, that's historically. Now, today, post-diagnosis, if, if I may ask, do, do you medicate with a... Uh, any particular, you know, methylphenidate uh, or anything no. like that? You don't no. medicate at all? No, no. Uh, and it, it's not because I'm a hero. It's because actually it just, uh, all my life, I wouldn't take any medication. Understood, yeah. And yeah. I've seen in my siblings that they would take a lot of medication and it didn't seem to do them any good. You know, long-term health, mine is much better than theirs. Um, yes. I, I know people who tell me that they really benefited from the medication, and that's that's great. So I wouldn't ever say don't take medication. What I would say is if you can find safe ways to get off it, that is probably a really good thing because medication will always numb you to some extent as well. Yeah, I so would tend to agree. It, it, well, it's, it's the nature of medication because medication has got a kind of linear effect, and that will always numb part of our non-linear being because nothing in our bodies and minds is linear mm. uh, if that make if that makes sense absolutely um, it does yeah but what i have done because you know of my of the background after i came back from that psychiatrist who told me that i wasn't bipolar <laughs> even so close i mean even then i didn't know anything about adhd or about neurodivergence nothing mm. i thought i needed to do something about this yeah, clearly the psychiatrist couldn't help. So it came to me intuitively that the problem was the high, not the low. Even though the low was obviously the one where people might be suicidal, and I often was. But if I controlled the high, that was the thing to go for. So I've worked very hard on doing that. I do a lot of, of meditation, but I also wouldn't allow myself to go that high anymore. It was very uncomfortable. And since then, I spoke to quite a few people. and I said, control that high. And they would say, but that is when I do all the great stuff. You know? So I don't want to control that. But if you go too high, you, there is no way you will not go much lower as well. That's, that's fascinating. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold on to that part of the conversation for a, a few more minutes, if I may. And I'll just relate to myself. I, I actually, I do medicate. Um, I take this, um, but actually, I don't take it very often. And I take it, uh, I was saying this to somebody yesterday as well, I take it on what I call stupid days. 
Um, and and the analogy for anybody who's listening out there who who probably has heard this from me before is, I I define my attention difference as having, and I don't know when I wake up in the morning if I'm going to have a clever day or a stupid day. It's very digital. Um, on clever days, the IQ, and I've never been measured, but let's keep the numbers simple for, for my benefit anyway, and it, 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 uh, it helps plump my feathers. But on a clever day, it's, the IQ is about 150. Everything falls into place. Everything flows. The flow state is amazing. My, my physical ability, my mental capabilities are way up there, and I've produced my best work. Now, that may be coincidental as the high you describe because it's a wonderful place to be. If I take Ritalin on those days, it brings me down. On the bad days, on the stupid days, my IQ is about 70. <laughs> and I can't even read properly. I can't perform simple mathematics um, with a pen and paper. My writing is atrocious. My ability to construct sentences is atrocious. And on those days, I take Ritalin because it brings me up so that I can function. And the, the problem is, and I, I live with it now because we manage so well, I can't tell you if tomorrow is going to be a clever day or tomorrow is going to be a stupid day, and nor can I tell how long the clever days are going to last for in succession and how long the stupid days will last for in succession. So medication for me, and I'm fully aware of the latest um, you know, long-term cardiac risks related to things like Ritalin uh, and, and, and Concerta and other medications and the long-term health deficits as a result of that. Um, but but you, you mentioned me medication not you mentioned meditation as well um are there other areas of of that and and also i'm sorry to bounce around a bit but controlling that high my god that that's it's just making me think so hard about i don't want to control that high because it's so amazing yeah. you know yeah. tell me more i'm, I'm fascinated well, by this yeah. i mean what you're saying makes complete sense yeah and there were time there was one time because i have got a number of grandchildren and when they were small i really wanted to be there for them and i was still in a place not not, not now when i feel i'm on a, on a fairly even keel but i was still having those difficult days you know days where i just wasn't with it and i remember thinking for the first time and the last time in my life maybe i should have medication so that the kids are safe with me Yes. That I'm safe with the children. But I went through that and I came out in a, in a, in a different place, you know. Um, so when I say control the high, control the silly parts of the high. Don't con it's not about controlling the flow. If you've got flow, that's great. But if you then stay up way beyond... You know, when, when you can feel you're now doing something that isn't right, you know, you've been working on your book already for five hours and you just push it to another hour with a cup of tea and things like that, you know, yes, that's yes. not in the flow anymore, right? That is where you actually enter the dangerous high, which will get ah, you down. Yeah. I understand. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's pushing that limit it's and knowing the limit. when to stop. Exactly. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. That's fascinating. So... Yeah. What are the, again, I, I'm going to relate to your story with my own as well, but yeah. what you, you said, you know, you, you've worked for five hours on the book, don't do the extra hour. How do you identify <laughs> that point in time when you say, now I'm overstepping my own limit? What, what are, are there physical cues? Are there mental cues that say enough's enough? What, what, how do you determine that? Well, you, like everything else, you can't determine it when you are already in it. No. So you've, you've got to prevent getting to that place, you know. So what, what I've started to do is to figure out when I started to not be in my flow anymore. Um, I, I read at the time a book called The 15-Minute Something. I don't know. I will find it for you. It's a, mm. I still have got it somewhere. Um, 
basically what they were saying, you know, work in 15-minute increments. So I tried things out because to start with, I might only have space for five, you know, five minutes. And some of my students only had two minutes, but that was fine. So we tried various things. How long can I go feeling fresh and myself? And when do I start drifting off or get into a funny state? I don't want to get up anymore. You know, I don't want to stand on my legs anymore. I'm just sitting there. Um, or when do I stop actually taking something in? Or the, or the you know, that the mind is starting to run off, you know, away from me. Um, so together with my students, we, we were doing all kinds of experiments with that. And I found that 15 minutes was definitely the, the cut-off point for me. So I would do something very sim um, simple, very, very, very um, basic. I would get up and give myself a stretch and just perhaps read a tiny little affirmation or say an affirmation or prayer or whatever it is, you know, that people want mm. to do. And what I found was how reluctant people are to get on their feet after sitting down. So I've started to do it with the individuals, with, with groups. Even nowadays, when I give a presentation, I try to get everybody up after 20 minutes because the body is actually starting to go into a kind of sleep state, I think, because we are not made for sitting still, you know. So I think after a certain amount of time, and people are a bit different with that, try it out, the body believes we are actually go sleeping because we don't move. Yes, yes. Yeah, and then all these funny things are happening. And one of the big ones here is that when we are leaning forward instead of being really upright, our lungs can't empty out the old stale air anymore. Of course. Yeah, so yeah. when you do that, the diaphragm goes down, the old air goes out, you get fresh air in, and everything is okay. <laughs> That's but fascinating. Also, but also, yeah. just because I, I did a, a course on, on mindfulness, and, uh, you know, I don't know, with my, with my attention differences, I can't do an hour of mindfulness, not even 20 minutes of mindfulness. So I do, <laughs> I do a few seconds of mindfulness. Standing on my feet immediately is a mindfulness exercise. That's fascinating, yeah? actually. Yeah, yeah. So I taught that to hundreds of people, I think, <laughs> because it makes such a difference. You know, a student should never kept, keep sitting there. They should always get up every so often. Or I said in classes, you know, if you can't get up because you're not at the back, then at least do that. You know, bring your shoulders back, wriggle yes. your feet around, make sure that both feet are on the ground. And I think we can do that in corporate environments. We can do it at home. You know, nobody yes. needs to know. And yeah. for me, I think it has become a lifeline. Yeah. I think so, too, actually. One of the, um, God, about 10 or so years ago over in the, the West Coast America, um, I attended a seminar by a gentleman called Tony Robbins. He's mm -hmm. well, very well known. And actually, another gentleman was presenting on stage, and he was not really known then. He's very well known now, uh, a, a Dutch gentleman by the name of Wim Hof, the, the guy who does the Iceman, the, the breathing mm -hmm. exercises and stuff like that. And every morning, every lunchtime, and every evening, I do 40 deep inhales and exhale on the 40th breath and hold it. Now, I can get up to about two minutes of holding my breath now. Um, before you doing it and three rounds of that and I do that every day and that's my that's my breath work that I do and mm -hmm. I've been doing that for years actually I very rarely miss that but that is a that has a pronounced effect on my cognitive behavior yeah. you know and and control over myself and certainly my emotions as well because you know I I, I you know, emotional control with attention differences is, is, is a tough one. And, and I'm certain probably with autism it is probably catalyzed as well. I, I, again, I don't know that, but I'm assuming, you know, from, from the, the conversation we've had. So very interestingly then, so you're, you, you yourself, you, you've kind of, that's a, a heck of a, a real journey to get to where you've gone pretty tough uh, as a mother as well um is there any areas of, of 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 going through that because i often wonder you know 
the differences between how neurodivergent elements present themselves in both men and women. Um, you know, a lady recently explained to me that, you know, her attention difference presents itself as an internalization as opposed to an externalization. Um, and again, I don't know, but I'm, I'm always interested in different people's opinions of how things present. I know for me personally, racing thoughts, you know, constant internal dialogue going on um, and, and the wish for silence sometimes is, is a very nice thing to have. And, and I often hear people talk about this thing called meditation um, and, and, you know, sitting there as if they're on the side of a mountain as a guru, you know, <laughs> at one with the universe. I have never achieved that state of, of silence. And, and I, I suspect I never will. Um, you talk about meditation as well. How does that work for you? And, you know, how does your attention different present internally as well as externally? I started meditating when I was in my mid-20s. Um, and part of that is also a, a relaxation, uh, attention and relaxation exercise that actually takes care of the whole of the body. And I've done that mostly twice a day. And that I, I, I'm also very dyspraxic. And that has taken part, care of most of my dyspraxic elements. Um, so that, that was very useful. Uh, and I remember my mother actually just having a fit of laughter when I told her that I've started meditating because she said, you can't sit still for a second, you know. And now I can sit still for hours <laughs> and hours. <laughs> um, I know what you mean with that internalization because, yes, you know, I can sit still for a very long time. Um, but my mind isn't still. So I haven't got the racing thoughts anymore. I haven't got the ruminations anymore because you can overcome those. You know, I, I told myself that I live in a rumination-free zone when I meditate. And after a while, the, the pre, you know, my mind accepted that. Yeah, hmm. Rumination is just simply not something I do anymore. I used to do it a lot, a lot, a lot. Hmm. Um, so that's really nice. You know, so you're coming closer to that quietness yes. but um, my mind is I, I try to explain it to somebody I think about two seconds before the mind starts wandering off I mean it, it's it's a constant bringing it back losing it bringing it back losing it but that's all right because the bringing it back eventually if you that will get you to that mastery you know it might take you many years <laughs> it's taken me 30 years so far but it, it really makes a big difference because you are exerting yourself as the mm. master here yeah so mm. that that makes a big difference but it still goes over a lot especially when I'm anxious when there is a lot going on or when I have listened to um, audio books or something like that too much it will play in my mind I'm trying not to watch videos. They will play on my mind as well. So at the moment, I've got um, a scroll and video fast, and that's been going on now for a while, and it's wonderful. The amount of, the amount of silence that comes in your life is great, <laughs> you know. Um, so from time to time, you know, I, I reach that moment of silence, and that it's wonderful. And of course, you want to extend that if you can. Yeah. But I would say not to worry about that. Yeah. yeah. It's much more important, I think, to work toward that being the master of your mind, even if the mind still does its own thing, you know, but that feeling of you can bring it back and you are the one who is calling the shots on it. Um, that in itself, I think, is what gets us there. I think so too, actually. Um, it, it's, you know, as, as we all go on our journey, and again, I don't know if it's after years of practice or just uh, 
you know, accepting the fact that, uh, that, that, that as one gets older, one learns day by day anyway in the day-to-day world. I mean, I, you know, Pink Floyd had a, a, a wonderful phrase that they used in one of their songs, you know, back in the 70s, you know, getting comfortably numb. And they were actually <laughs> talking about self-medicating with various drugs so that that numbness of silence existed then. And I think, you know, it's very achievable with with you know w- with various um, practices such as meditation or breath work or whatever, mm-hmm. I, I just have not personally got there yet. Although you know I have a a, a, a close friend who also has ADHD um, that spent a weekend on an island in the west of Ireland here, um, and he said you know George I was there for seventy two hours and for seventy of those I was sat cross legged with my mind racing and it wasn't until about the seventieth hour did I actually achieve that state? And, you know, he said it was very painful to to go through that process, but I'm delighted I did because I got there. And ever since then, you know, in the last 10 years, I can achieve that state, which is extremely important to, to my sense of self and my sense of, as you say, mastery over my own mind, which is, which is wonderful, you know. T- tell me, you know, it, it's wonderful to talk to somebody who... Does the work that you do, as well as having the, con- the, 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 the neurodivergent conditions that you do as well, um, and I, I, I'm, I'm kind of interested in your thoughts for the future as to, you mentioned much earlier in the podcast about setting up, you know, in-person courses, um, you know, that, that you would enjoy and so on and so forth. What does that future look like for you, um, both personally and professionally, you know, uh, as far as supporting yourself in your own journey, but also mm-hmm. you, your, your professional endeavors for helping others as well? Well, you know, some people call it late bloomers, isn't it? So <laughs> I, could, I could now retire, but I'm just starting my business and I know it will be, you know, very quite a big part of my life but it will also allow me to have that balance between really being you know really being able to support and to be out there but also have this time for myself you know I I wouldn't want to go back to being employed Um, I want I want to you know my 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 symbol or my logo is an eastern dragon on which somebody writes because I feel that in in the Western mythology, the dragon is that beast that needs to be slayed, Mm. you know, slain. Um, And we have to fight so hard to overcome it, you know. But in the Eastern philosophy, the dragon is the one who is right behind you, right with you, the bringer of prosperity and happiness and all the good things. And it came to me years ago that that is... That is what I want to do. I want to be able to ride that dragon, you know, and be free. And it took a while, you know, but this is what I'm doing. (laughs) And this is what I teach other people to do, Mm. um, to have that mastery for them to feel really safe in their their own selves, you know, feel comfortable in their own skins and start riding their, you know, glorious freedom-bringing dragon. So for me, the future, I think, is definitely a very positive one because, you know, having always all my life been so self-critical of myself and, and not being able, well, sometimes I was able to do what I wanted to do, but it was always really hard. Mm. And uh, there would be a time when I just didn't have the energy for it anymore. And this is not what it feels like now. It feels like... Um, I get so much back for what I give. It's a self-sustaining energy, you know, and in fact, it's becoming bigger and bigger. I love to collaborate, which I wouldn't have done before because I would have always felt I might be wrong, you know, people find me out, you know, this imposter syndrome thing, you know. um, But now I think the thing to do is to collaborate as much as I possibly can. And I also do that with my clients because everybody has so much to give, isn't it? So I want the future for all of us yeah. to have that 
for people to grow into their own skin, we need neurodivergent people. We need it so much. You know, look where normal, so-called normal, got us you know, to the brink of extinction. So we, we need that energy from everybody. And my argument always is everybody has got this particular something, very important something. And it might be a small thing. You know, it might be that they can just give of their love. I met, I met a young autistic person the other day from the US and he lived in his heart you know so he, he I told I helped him to realize that's what that's where he's giving is mm. yeah um, so everybody has got something mm. that is like um, you know pure gold you know that needs giving to the world because once we give it I think we, we also get it back we need we need to get that channel going you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't need to be a big thing. We just need to work toward that, I feel. And then, then we feel good in ourselves. I think so, too, actually. It's, it's very interesting that when, you know, the, 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 the pursuit of happiness, if you like, you know, that, that, um, that, that U.S., uh, United States tenet that says, you know, the pursuit of happiness is, uh, you know, is, is uh, health, wealth, you know, the acquisition of wealth wealth being you know money um and and actually i think the reality is is as long as we can satisfy you know our needs of you know a roof over our head food on the table you know the, the next most important thing for me i think and and, and hopefully for, for others whether they are neurodivergent or not is actually identifying you know that that thing that they like doing that that um that gives them you know satisfaction i think i was sort of talking about this yesterday with somebody you know ned hallowell he, he, he talks about it as being unwrapping the gift the thing that lights your brain up and go and do that you know whatever that is and i think that's fascinating and you know the, the world is such a wonderful place now that there is the ability to do that but cassandra this brings me to a particular point um on the arc of the story that we talked before we started recording you know, I, I remember at the beginning of this particular episode, we're talking, uh, you, know, you mentioned you, you, you are autistic and, 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 you know, ADHD, if you like, as well, and, and you have a, a, an element of dyspraxia there. I remember seeing a photograph, a black and white photograph um, of children handcuffed to cast iron radiators. This is recently. And when I looked at the caption underneath that, it said the date was the 1980s. Now, for those who are younger, they probably think, my God, that's ancient. But actually, the 80s was when I went to school. And they had, you know, they were autistic. And it shocked me. I, it, it shocked me that I lived in a world where you know, ADHD was just, wasn't, it didn't exist. There was just a naughty boy or a naughty girl. And, you know, kids with, with autism were handcuffed to radiators. Now, I'm not saying that in the UK that happened regularly, but that was one example. What I'm, what it, I suppose that, that builds a foundation to my question. You live in the United Kingdom now. How do you feel that the society of the United Kingdom acts towards or behaves towards neurodiversity clearly it's moved forward but is it is it progressive now in your opinion is it going backwards in your opinion how do you feel about society in the united kingdom um, compared to say other countries as far as neurodiversity is concerned uh, i think that is a multi-layer question and yes. answer yeah because what i observe is that the grassroots movement is becoming stronger and stronger mm. but the societal movement is going backwards so for example where i used to work we were right at the forefront of bringing it wasn't even called neurodivergence at the time most people just talked about dyslexia you know but we were in the forefront of it well known for it now it's nearly erased down to nothing yes 
and um, a friend of mine from Switzerland called it a rollback. So I think we came so close that it had to be taken really seriously. It wasn't anymore a question of, um, well, it's great to know about it and perhaps we can do something and it's all interesting and it's exciting. It came to that point where people were starting to say, yes, but then you really need to abide by the law. Yeah, you need to abide by all the things that you're supposed to do by the law. And then mm. that rollback happened because that paradigm wasn't shifting. Mm. And I think oh, changing a paradigm is a question of grassroots movement at the end of the day. You know, it doesn't come from the top. The top has got completely different ideas about how, how life should look like, I think. Yes. Um, and also, I believe that the paradigm, we, we created the word neurodivergent, and I, th and I think that helps the grassroots movement, mm. but it hasn't changed how the paradigm is perceived officially. Yeah? Okay. Because now we are talking about neurodivergence instead of dyslexia or ADHD or whatever. Mm. But we're still talking about the same kind of ways that we measure it. We still see it as a disorder. You know, and um, we see all these words around us. We have to go through an assessment in order to be assessed and then labeled so that we can get any support. So all of this hasn't changed yet. But I think a lot of people mm. now feel more comfortable because they use the word neurodivergent and they can then say, oh, this is what it means without actually abiding by it because they still live in the same paradigm. So. I don't think this will change until the grassroots becomes strong enough. Um, and I do feel that is definitely happening. You know, the grassroots is changing the paradigm behind the, behind the scenes. I, I tend to agree with you on that, actually. One of the, the things I've noticed in a couple of episodes with um, fellow neurodivergents who live in the United States is that in the United States, certainly ADHD is a formal disability mm. um here too I, yeah oh is it in in the united kingdom yeah wow i did not know that actually it certainly yep. isn't here in ireland um uh, at all i i don't know how i feel about that because I, it's different yes is it a a disablement i i don't think it is um that's just my opinion for what it's worth but i i feel slightly disappointed and like you I don't like the word deficit. I do like the word difference, and and I think that's what it is. And I I, I I'm very close to somebody who um, works on a, a subject matter which I think is very relevant to neurodivergence, called psychological safety in the workplace. And I I feel that if you are a business owner who employs people, um, there's a layer of skills that various employees do that 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 works towards the greater whole but i think there's also a layer of capability you know if you give somebody with adhd or autism or a combination of that a particular role to fulfill they will do that much better than somebody who doesn't have those traits and i think you know to identify that in the workplace is extremely important and to provide an environment that will support that is also yeah. extremely important as well so calling a disability while that may help from a socioeconomic perspective with you know welfare and and so on and so forth i'm not i'm not certain that it it, it it's a good thing long term as you say from a you know the, the top down um and the, the analogy I always use um, is, you know, I, I'm convinced that Christopher Columbus had ADHD. You know, when he was at the, on his ship going, I'm going to sail over the edge of the, edge of the world and find out what's over there. And I'm, I'm convinced that now Elon Musk is doing something similar with, you know, putting humans on Mars. Um, you know, the world needs people like Elon Musk to, to progress, you know, you know, 
human beings to, to the next level. Whether going to Mars is the right thing or not, I don't know. But um, but certainly, you know, I, I can always imagine the quayside when Columbus left, and you know, everybody, the crowds of people watching him leave were saying, "Oh, you know, you're going to sail over the edge of the world. That must be bad." You know, and and he did it anyway. So um, I, I, I think in 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 life, there's there's a lot of examples of of where you know neurodivergence have definitely taken the world forward um and i'm also convinced that silicon valley um and you know technology is taking forward with neurodivergence and uh, autism and uh, asperger's and, and and all of those great traits so i wouldn't ever want to label them as a disability i'm afraid but uh, again it, it's it's probably just a play on words um well, I think it's it's more. Sorry, is it okay no, if I come please. in? Yeah. Please, yes. I, I think it's more than a play on words. It's very important that we, as the grassroots people, never ever use words that are not right because language is so powerful. You know, language um, decides so much, and it's very important that we don't use the word disability. I think it might be even an interesting word for people who are physically disabled. You know, some of them don't like that word either because of the connotations. I think that we all can be disabled in certain ways, yes, but that's a different thing that doesn't make us disabled. To my mind, the problem is that we don't know how to deal with difference. Yeah, so. Our education system is still exactly the same as it was for the Industrial Revolution. Yes. Yeah? And it has come about for that reason, to create certain, a certain workforce for certain things. It's never, been, it's never been created to educate people to deal with life. Mm. Yeah? So, and because of that, it makes a big thing out of this idea of difference. So difference immediately becomes a, a problem rather mm. than something that is normal and needs to be nurtured because, as you said, it's the neurodivergent community that in a way is nearly responsible for this, this earth to evolve, you know, for thought to evolve, for physical things to evolve. You know, if you think that um, every seventh person is neurodivergent and many others have neurodivergent traits, that is a very, very high number, I think. And we need it at the moment, isn't it? We do need to have solutions for all kinds of things, you know, from the heart to heart to finding solutions like what are we going to do with this earth, um, you know, mental solutions, all of these things. So I think at the moment it's particularly high and that is why the grassroots can be so strong. Mm. Yeah, yeah, because I you've got so agree. many people. Uh, there, there is a little theory, I don't know where I got it from, that 15% of the population will always be neurodivergent because otherwise we would stagnate. But now I think we are talking much, much, much higher Yeah, at the moment. So the problem that, as I see it, starts with this idea of difference not being good because it puts a spanner in the works of those people who want to make life simple for themselves because it suits being in power and being yes. yeah so we don't need to go more into that i think we understand each other but yes. imagine if you would go to a school where these differences are completely normal and you are taught according to what your brain does best would we have the same issues? Would we have a disorder? You know, this whole idea of the brain of some people with ADHD being smaller, to me, it's completely laughable. That is such a waste of money for research. Uh, so much money is spent on, on medication and partly, yeah, that's useful, but partly it's also hair raising because we actually don't know at all what we are doing. We don't know what will happen to a child who gets those medications, you know? So if I would be a schoolmistress, I would take all, the, I would, would screen everybody, not just cognitively, I would just screen everybody, see what they, are, what they are good at, what they really love, what they like doing, where they have got difficulties, where they don't want to engage. And then I would put all the so-called ADHD children into a class for gifted children and, and teach them through projects only. And possibly all, 
possibly also the autistic children, because you can teach them everything they need to know, including their weaknesses, through what they are doing best and what they're really interested in. Problem gone. Yeah, I have you. That, that's actually a very interesting mechanism of 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 education. Actually, have you ever heard of a school in Suffolk called Summerhill? You might not have. I probably have, but I might get that mixed up with a different school. That's much that's older. That's okay. I'll um, I can afterwards after this episode, and I'll I'll put this in the the the, um, the commentary for others to look at as well. Summerhill is a very interesting... It's a private school in, in a place called Leyston in Suffolk in the UK, over on the East Coast there. And how they function, it's a high school for 11 to 16-year-olds. And in year one, and it's called a different year now, but at the age of 11, when they first go into the school, um, the classes are derived, and there are no rules. There is nothing. There are no classes. There are no zero rules. And every year is exactly the same process. The, they, the kids will likely draw graffiti on the walls, smash furniture in the classroom, be completely misbehaved. And they then run out of energy um, to be destructive. And then the, the tutors sit with them and they often sit on the ground in circles and they then in the same way that Lord of the Flies, the story, they then develop their own rules. Those rules that the kids themselves develop. They then, after having derived their own set of rules, then start deriving their own syllabus for learning. And then from that, they then choose the subject matter by which they choose to learn uh, and when they choose to learn it. So what the, the school's philosophy is, is they've broken down everything to, you know, let's go right back to the beginning. Let's go for nothing. You go and be destructive. You go, you form a group. You learn your own rules. And after that, what they find is, is that they, by having that syllabus that they have determined, actually it moves towards a syllabus of learning that's much faster than the standard process of, of teaching, and, and the quality of education that comes out of the end of it is much higher than the average method of learning. It's a phenomenal thing, but it's proved now. It's been around for 50 years, this, this particular school, and, uh, and, in, and, and brings kids from all over the world. Um, I like that as a mechanism. Um, the cost of furniture with IKEA these days is probably a bit cheaper than it was, you know, 50 years ago. Um, but it's it's a phenomenal um, philosophy of of learning. So um, I, I I like that. But what it doesn't do is it it doesn't separate neurodivergence within the group. It allows the group to coexist together as a unit that moves forward. And I really like the idea, again, if I take any organization that's complex in its nature, you will have people who are clever at math, those who are clever at English, those who have a better memory, those who can write, you know, those who think faster, those who think slower. But as a unit working towards a greater goal, I think that's a wonderful thing as well. So, um, Cassandra, can I just kind of just go off at a tangent, if I may, as well, um, <laughs> typically in an ADHD fashion? Um, you know, you talk about the future, the business that you're setting up, and are you, and, and it seems an oxymoron to ask this question as we're both putting ourselves out there in a podcast um, to the world, but I, has your attitude towards your neurodivergence and how you are publicly uh, about it. I, I tell everybody I've got ADHD. Right? Ten years ago, I didn't. Are you open about it to your, your social circle, to a wider audience now, or, or not? I, I'm just in, intrigued by that. Again, it's an interesting question because I'm completely open when it comes to the people I work with or... Uh, you know, reach or reach out to in my work because that's so important. You know, how can you work with mm. neurodivergent people and actually holding something back? So that that's that would be silly, really. Mm. Um, 
in my social circle, I don't make much of it because, you know, especially in my family, there's still a lot of ideas of how things should work and don't work. So I don't mention it much. But when I have mentioned it here and there, it actually has improved things a little bit, you know. And now, uh, you know, at least two of the grandchildren are on what some call the spectrum, which is an mm. interesting thing because, of course, that in itself creates uh, an us and them. Um, yes. And that's quite interesting how that is handled. And again, I think we are not quite there yet to be open about it all. Um, I think it's still like, oh, I'm not quite sure whether I'm a bit afraid of that or whether I think that should be an interesting thing, whether I should have any part in that because I would need to think about myself. You know. Um, so, yeah, that, that is, you know, when people talk about unmasking, quite honestly, I don't quite know what that means. I think to some extent I probably have unmasked because I would have never done anything like that a while back. And now, you know, when I do a video, I'm just myself. And I also have found that my, the way that my face works and my body works is very different. You know, I, I sometimes take a photo and I look at it and I think I would never have looked like that ever before mm. now. Mm. Yeah. So I think there is this element of unmasking, of just being me. Mm. But in terms of talking about it, I would immediately, if it feels right, you know, I wouldn't hold anything back then or, or would, you know, very often, um, yeah, I'm, I'm responsive, let's put it that way. But I don't usually start the conversation. I think it's not possible to bring people onto the side of how I think by telling them about it unless there is a reason for them that they want to listen because that ah. paradigm is still too strong. Yes, yes. Yeah. I completely empathize and share the same thoughts, actually. If it's appropriate, I will share. Mm. I, I, I don't stand on a soapbox and go, hey, everybody, I have ADHD. I, I, <laughs> I don't do that. But, but where it's appropriate. Listen, I'm, I'm going to ask you a final question, if I may, because we've come really well through the arc. And, and, and thank you you know, for the last hour of your time sharing. Um, it, it's, a, it's an odd question, um, but I, I do this for my own edification. If you could have your time again from the beginning and I could click my fingers and say, I will take away your autism, your ADHD, your dyspraxia, and allow you to be neurotypical and have your time again, would you choose that path? I don't think something like neurotypical actually exists. No. They're just all different. But there is definitely an element of being different. Yes, yes. yes? So not everybody has got that difference that gives that particular spark. That doesn't mean that they are less, but you know, it, there, there is definitely an element there. But I don't think neurotypical exists. So from that point of view, it's not possible for me to answer that question because I am who I am. And if I can be who I am without all the grief that has come through the disabling aspects, if I could have lived a life where people would have taken me as I am and, and taught me how I needed to be taught and not give me the feeling that I'm less and uh, different in a negative way, Yes, of course, that would be great because I could have done so much with my life from the beginning. Yes, yes. yes? But at the end of the day, I am who I am, you know, and, and obviously I went through all of this. And so I'm grateful that I've still come out the other end now being me and not somebody else's creation. Yeah. Yes. I don't know whether that answers your question. No, it does. It, it absolutely <laughs> does. No, thank you very much. Cassandra Clemens, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I've really enjoyed that. I'm just going to press stop on the record, but if you just hold on for a second as well, if that's okay. I'm yeah. delighted. I really am. Thank you. <laughs> it just pause.